As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, I feel like it's pretty hard to uh, be an investment manager at the moment. Like, I feel I feel like it's hard at the best of times, but at the moment you have this intense volatility. So stuff that is normally volatile, like stocks and commodities, is even more volatile. And then you have stuff that isn't really supposed to be volatile, but definitely is in the new environment. And I'm thinking mostly about bonds. Well, and also, you know, the underlying macro situation is just extremely complicated and contested. Mm -hmm. I mean, like there's a debate about whether you know the last two quarters considered uh, are characterized as a recession, and there's kind of legit uh, questions about that in my you know setting aside NBR versus two quarters, like how should you call this environment in which consumer sentiment is really low, growth is down, employment is booming, inflation is still hot, consumption is still high. Like these are just like really difficult uh, uh, environments to understand, in part because it is kind of unprecedented. Yeah, and. It seems like everyone kind of feels bad and all the survey-based economic measures suggest that sentiment is deteriorating. But at the same time, the hard numbers are really resilient. So actual spending and investment just keep going. And yeah, you're right. It's a really weird environment, particularly if you're trying to put money to work. And then I would say over the last two years, like everyone kind of got it wrong at every turn, right? Like everyone said, okay, (laughs) COVID hit in early 2020. Here comes a big downturn and a recession. And it's like, actually, we had the shortest uh, recession in history. And then stocks were at all time highs a few months later. Then, you know, fast forward a little bit to 2021, People are super positive. Yeah, inflation was ticking up, but A is likely transitory. It's like reopening. And almost everyone got that wrong, particularly a lot of investors, judging by the repri- how fast the repricing happened. The Fed had to pivot pretty quickly when it realized inflation would persist for longer than expected. Pivot really started in November. So it's like at no point has it felt like the consensus <laughs> has been like had a good feel on this cycle. At no point has it felt like anyone really knows what's going on. Correct. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 
Okay. On that note, uh, we are going to be speaking with someone about all of these very, very big topics, uh, really the perfect guest. We're going to be speaking with Dan Iveson. He is, of course, the group chief investment officer and managing director over at PIMCO's Newport Beach. For those that don't know PIMCO, I mean, you must know PIMCO, but PIMCO has something like $2 trillion worth of assets under management. So making these tough decisions about the macro outlook and where to actually invest every day. So Dan, thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. Well, thank you, Tracy and Joe. I'm very excited to, to, to be here today. So you sit on PIMCO's investment committee. I'm really curious what's top of mind for the people who have to do something with $2 trillion worth of assets every day. You know, what are you guys talking about and what's what's um, on the on the top of the agenda for you at the moment? Sure. Well, you, you know, inflation is is certainly a, a, a topic. As, as you mentioned, uh, this has been an incredibly challenging uh, time from a economic forecasting perspective. First, a global pandemic, then an unprecedented amount of fiscal stimulus, and now uh, an inflation problem that at least is partially related to those two uh, prior points. So, you know, increasingly, we're spending a lot of time talking about this inflation dynamic, of course, um, how policymakers are going to You'll look to look to you know get inflation back towards their targets, and now uh, increasingly markets are seeing you know, what has you know historically been um, a, a fairly obvious trade-off, and that's you know growth, employment, uh, and and this inflation problem, and how will that be balanced uh, over time? Uh, in addition to that, of course, uh, we're not you know operating in a normal environment. Uh, we have war in Europe, um, lots of uncertainty, and ongoing global tension. Uh, between the United States, you know, other Western countries, um, and China, uh, so there's just a lot of uncertainty, um, a, a lot of risk, and we're trying to um, gain uh, sufficiently broad perspectives to see where we may have an edge. And I think it's important in an environment um, as highly uncertain as this one uh, to realize when you know at a particular point in time you don't have an edge, and where um, you're entering markets uh, that represent a lot of risk, a lot of volatility. And I think there's a risk management piece um, here as well. Um, there's enough volatility where we should be able to zero in on, on areas uh, where we do have an edge and where we can add value while looking to shelter the portfolio from a lot of the unwanted volatility that we're seeing elsewhere um, in markets. Um, so, so that's one key theme. The second, of course, is a lot of real-time discussions around this volatility that we've witnessed. Um, beneath the surface, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of dispersion across equity markets and fixed income markets, a lot of you know localized overshooting given uh, markets aren't super liquid. Uh, they don't feel distressed, but certainly a type of environment where there's, you know, you know using a baseball analogy, a lot of singles um, you know, to hit. While you got to be careful, you know, swinging for a home run, given this radical uncertainty and the fact that you can get, you know, caught off sides pretty quickly in this type of market. So why don't you talk a little bit more about, you know, you said identifying your own sources of edge. Like, what are they? You know, and I want to get to the actual like market environment and your outlook for inflation and bonds and all that. But when you think about like where sources of edge come from in an environment like this, like what's the answer to that? Well, I think, I think one relates to... Um, you know, markets that um, are, are are less liquid than they've been in the past, um, and and opportunities to take advantage of some overshooting. Um, perhaps a good example um, is is more recently over the last few weeks, or or maybe going back several weeks, where um, equities were uh, quite weak, um, credit spreads were widening and widening fairly uh, significantly. Big upticks in the various volatility markets. Um, you know, a volatility volatility market could be an agency mortgage, but it could also be, you know, more technical. You know, volatility markets and, 
you know, we've seen even over the course of this summer, um, various um, levered players, you know, other other you know specialty type styles get a bit over their skis from a risk perspective. And I think part of the snapback that we witnessed over the last several weeks, and you know, a pretty powerful recovery into what appeared to be, you know, bad fundamental news, uh, is tied to you know a little bit of this um, this this positioning that was a, a bit offsides. So you mentioned how unusual the economic environment has been, and I feel like this is the source of tensions or problems for a lot of investors at the moment. Like we're used to thinking about a normal economic cycle, you know, it starts and then at some point it stops, but it feels like what we've seen post pandemic is, is not a normal economic cycle at all. How would you characterize it? Like, how are you thinking about it? Is this late cycle? Is it early cycle? It seems very confusing at the moment. Is it a cycle outside the cycle? Yeah, is it even a cycle? Who knows? Yeah, I think there are multiple cycles, or or at least significant cross currents. Um, I, I I think when you look at cycles, I think it's important to make the distinction between a lot of the Western economies and what's going on in China right now. Um, you know, to a lot of us, um, COVID is mostly behind us, and we're in the midst of a pretty significant COVID-related reopening process. Uh, very strong demand for travel services. Uh, shift away f- uh, in, in, in many economies from um, COVID-related goods uh, consumption towards, you know, a more normalized, um, you know, focus on, on, on areas associated with a more more traditional and, and open economy. Uh, over in China now, they're dealing with COVID. Other Asian countries are to a lesser degree. And they're in the midst of uh, an environment, you know, where economic growth is slow and slowing. Uh, and inflation isn't uh, a material problem. Uh, and then back to you know even the U.S. economy, uh, very very different uh, or difficult to understand in the sense that we do have significant momentum in a lot of sectors, yet we're quickly beginning to see the impact of prior policy tightening on some key areas of the economy as well. So you know the level of complexity is 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 there, um, but again you know when you have an inflation problem and you have policymakers looking to tighten policy you're going to get into a situation where um, it's almost certain that you're going to see some economic weakness. And then, of course, the challenge then becomes, you know, how does this economic weakness uh, impact inflation? Uh, Is there a chance of a soft landing? Or um, do we have a situation where uh, probabilities are growing and growing fairly rapidly that we end up in a recessionary environment? Of course, those different scenarios have very different uh, implications on what segments of the opportunity set are going to perform well uh, both in absolute and in relative terms. Well, let's just get right into that. And of course, there's an econ debate. You have uh, folks like Larry Summers and Olivier Blanchard saying like, look, it is it is uh, unrealistic. It's wishful thinking to say that we can really get inflation back down to any reasonable level without having a meaningful rise, a significant rise in the unemployment rate. Do you buy that or do you think, uh, I mean, because I think this is the multi-trillion dollar question right now, can the Fed get back to target without a painful recession? Yeah, so I, I, I think history is on their side. Um, Who's you, there? you don't see Summers, a lot of periods, uh, Summers and, yeah. and, and Blanchard yeah. for sure. But there's certainly a chance that we that we um, see what will feel like a somewhat soft landing. Now, you know, here at PIMCO, we still think uh, core CPI at the end of this year is going to uh, remain elevated up near that five and a half percent type range, even out you know towards the end of 23. And I'd you know take that forecast with a, with a great assault, given ex- extreme uncertainty. But we don't see inflation getting back below three and a half percent, you know, all the way out to 2023. 
Uh, so we do think that the likelihood is the Fed's going to need to tighten and tighten fairly significantly from here. Uh, but we do think there's at least a shot um, of a somewhat soft landing. We think, you know, officially, you know, we're going to have a recession. Uh, it could be a prolonged but fairly mild recession. Uh, but, but again, um, one of the bright spots, if, if there is a bright spot here, is that, you know, over the last few cycles, there appears to be a strong and increasingly strong relationship between the financial economy and the real economy. And you've already seen um, in response to, you know, moderate tightening thus far, a pretty significant impact on financial conditions. Now, they've uh, loosened over the course of the last several weeks, uh, but that transmission mechanism appears to be working uh, and working fairly quickly. So again, we have an economy with very strong momentum, uh, particularly on the wage and the employment side, uh, and uh, a Fed uh, and other central banks uh, that have tightened, and it appears that they are having an impact on recent economic activity. Um, so there is um, a path that I would define as a moderate slowdown and a slowdown that doesn't have a material impact uh, on overall credit fundamentals and would probably put a 25 or 30 percent type probability uh, to that type of scenario. Again, um, you know, anytime you have headline inflation uh, up in the 9 percent type range, uh, unprecedented, um, at least for you know, several decades, and a lot of geopolitical risk, including war uh, in Europe, which could deteriorate very, very quickly. Uh, you have to position yourself, you know, for at least a meaningful probability of a more material economic slowdown. And what that means, of course, under that state of the world, uh, you have a lot more widening to go uh, across most credit sectors. Uh, you probably have significant uh, earnings um, deterioration uh, from this point forward, which will likely lead to weakness in equity markets as well. So, you know, again, um, you know, our, our general view is that we have a fairly mild but sustained recession. Uh, that's why we continue to be fairly cautious uh, regarding the more credit sensitive sectors of the market. But again, uh, that's one of a, a handful of credible scenarios. And, and again, you have to prepare for the worst as an investor. Um, and, and that means, you know, thinking about preserving capital given the radical uncertainty as much as it does, you know, aggressively positioning to, you know, generate total return, particularly in those riskier segments of the market. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You know, Joe mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that a lot of people got it wrong on inflation. And I'm not just talking about the Fed, of course, um, which, you know, doubled down on the transitory idea a number of times. But I'm thinking also just of the broader market. You know, you look at break evens and those were continuously expecting inflation to peak within a few months. um, And that hasn't really come to pass. What do you think people got wrong about the inflation outlook? What was it that the market seemed to miss? Yeah, I think a lot of participants, uh, you know, were looking at an inflationary process in a more traditional sense. Uh, I think the pandemic itself uh, was quite confusing. Uh, it, of course, had you know direct uh, supply side impacts on the global economy, and uh, even more importantly, um, the the policy response on the fiscal side was massive. Um, and, and, and massive, sufficiently massive that, again, uh, we haven't had a lot of good case studies in history in dealing with, with such a significant uh, demand-side boost at a time where uh, you already had significant COVID-related supply constraints. So, you know, it's an unprecedented situation. Uh, we talked earlier about, you know, these cross-currents, you know, impacting uh, economies, making it even harder to forecast. And I think, you know, in some sense, you know, we all or, or, or many of us were you know, using, you know, prior frameworks, at least initially, uh, to think about and, and, and to forecast this uh, inflationary process. Now, your point's, you know, a, a, a good one. Um, you know, even, even you know, market pricing um, didn't envision, you know, this level of inflation or uh, how sustained this inflation would be. But at the same time, when you look today at longer-term measures um, of inflationary risk within markets, uh, they, too, are fairly complacent. Uh, and if markets prove to be right, um, then in fact, um, this inflationary event may prove to be uh, fairly temporary. So it is remarkable if you said, you know, inflation would be, you know, up at 9%, people would be talking about a Fed, you know, well behind the curve, and you would have a 10-year break-even inflation rate um, below 2.5%. Or looking at a popular rate, we look at a, a forward rate, like a five-year forward, five-year rate, uh, well below uh, 2.5%. Uh, or yield curve for that matter today that is fairly flat um, or you know slightly inverted at levels uh, below three percent. So you know in some sense, um, although policymakers and investors were late, uh, you wouldn't have made a tremendous amount of money um, through a significant bet on inflation unless you happen to be in some of those uh, commodity markets and particularly the commodity markets that have been impacted as much by the conflict in Ukraine as um, they were you know tied to this you know inflationary trend that we've been discussing. So again, markets still may be wrong. Uh, there's still plenty of uncertainty around this inflation dynamic um, on a go-forward basis. But it is um, you know, quite interesting that um, although you know, people were late, um, markets are suggesting that perhaps things can be just fine um, with, with a bit more uh, policy tightening. Yeah, some of these medium-term um, break-even measures or five-year, five-year forward break-evens never really got too out of hand and are kind of in normal range. That being said, the other phenomenon this year is, I don't want to say the Fed's been behind the curve per se, because that's a little bit of a cliche and I'm never even totally sure what it means. But I would say that it does seem as though at each meeting, they're sort of expressing some hope or optimism that, okay, we think we're getting closer to where we're uh, in a neutral range. We're not going to go as hard. And then some other data point comes out and it's like, whoops, time to increase, uh, uh, time to go faster again. And so we got that 75, maybe there was hope it was going to go down, another 75. Uh, still we're sort of, uh, you know, uh, then policy believes that policy is close to neutral. Are we at a place where maybe 
the the Fed uh, is in a comfortable spot? Or do you think, as you said, you think there's going to still be significant tightening from here, that once again, the Fed might have to go a little harder than it hopes in the short term, at least, in order to constrain inflation? Yeah, you know, first of all, you know, policymakers tend to, you know, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll tend to have an optimistic spin uh, on yeah. things. But, you know, certainly the price action of late suggests that what central banks have done so far are beginning to have an impact um, on economic growth. And um, it's not um, a, a, you know, a, a, a view that a hard landing is around the corner. Um, credit spreads tightened over 100 basis points, you know, using, you know, using high yield as, as a proxy. We've seen, seen a significant, you know, bounce in, in equity valuations in the midst of moderate deterioration in a, a lot of the forward economic indicators. So relative to where we were several weeks ago, the Fed has to be reasonably pleased uh, with the impact of their policy decisions thus far. And I think although Powell may have... Um, you know, slipped up a touch in suggesting, you know, with a high degree of confidence that we're, uh, or an implied degree of confidence that we're near neutral right now. I think the key point was that um, we can begin to focus a bit more on the data. Um, you have seen uh, the beginning of some, you know, material signs of, of economic slowing in a world with massive uncertainty of a geopolitical variety or a traditional economic variety. So, I think they're 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 comfortable in the sense that um, they've they've gotten to a point where they seem to have calmed markets over the short term. This can change very very quickly. And when we look at you know a nine percent headline inflation rate, which is likely uh, at least you know, the near term peak. They have a lot of work to do, um, and we do think that they likely will need to tighten a bit more than what's currently embedded in the front end of yield curves. Um, we don't think they were wildly far away. We still, you know, have thought that you know a three and a half or four percent type funds rate combined with a material balance sheet reduction will likely be enough um, to um, slow the economy and get inflation back towards their target. And we're at two fifty now, so another. 150 basis points of tightening, more or less, is what you see. That would be right. Yeah, 125, 1, 1, 150. But you know, again, even under that base case scenario, you know, we're not back to core CPI levels um, that you know um, within most central bank target zones until you know probably out into 2024. And there can be a lot of shocks in the interim. Some that may be helpful, um, you know, to, to getting inflation back down towards target several um, events that may not be helpful. And again, I, I think humility has got to be the, 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 the key point here. Uh, when we think about inflation, when we think about inflation's uh, impact on the developed markets, um, you have to be a meteorologist as well. Um, you know, you're going to go into a period, um, in Europe in particular, uh, temperatures get cold with massive uncertainty around uh, energy supplies and with Russia. Um, holding the cards, at least for the time being. So um, there, there are a lot of events that can derail um, the, the more positive scenarios um, that we've described and have been embedded in market pricing. Again, one of the reasons when we add up all of these sources of uncertainty, we see you know, the type of rally um, that we've gotten uh, across financial markets over the last several weeks. And we're inclined you know, to take a few chips off the table, um, get, 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 get away or reduce exposure to the most economically sensitive areas of the market. Not because our base case view um, is, 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 is so dire. It's just that this extreme uncertainty is such um, that, that investors should just be careful in some of those more credit sensitive investments where, you know, essentially they're forms of, 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 of a short volatility type trade. And given that extreme uncertainty, yeah. we just don't think, you know, you're getting paid enough 
just yet at these levels to be you know overly aggressive in uh, the, the 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 those more economically sensitive areas or higher yielding areas of uh, the opportunity set. It's a generalization. There's there's uh, certainly you know things you can do you know on the margin, but but that's our general thinking you know given where we are today. Can you talk a little bit more about how you see the credit market at the moment? Because I feel like obviously whenever there's concern about a recession, a lot of those worries are going to seep into corporate bonds, um, which are economically sensitive, as you mentioned. But then secondly, even before the pandemic, I think there was quite a lot of concern about froth in various portions of the credit market, things being overvalued and potentially um, illiquid when the time came to sell. So how are you viewing that space at the moment? Where are there opportunities and what's most vulnerable? Sure. So, you know, just just at a very high level, and, and, and I think there's a lot, a lot of interesting things going on, you know, w- within the credit markets. Um, you know, we were adding some credit, um, you know, back, you know, several weeks ago when, you know, high yield corporate bond spreads, you know, had gotten out to north of, you know, 600 uh, basis points. We thought there, you know, looking at historical analysis and, and, and thinking about embedded uh, recession probabilities in those spreads, um, the credit markets were, um, you know, forecasting uh, a, a very high probability of at least a, a moderate recession. Uh, after the rally, um, now over the course of the last several weeks, um, spreads look less interesting to us. Uh, the embedded probability in, in, in credit spreads currently of a of a more moderate recession has dropped, you know, down towards you know somewhere in that 20, 25 percent. You know, type area, so um, a little bit less uh, interesting today. But you know, back in terms of thinking about the credit market and the structure of the credit market, I, you know, a, a, a few thoughts here. Um, one, since the global financial crisis, you've had massive regulation impacting the real estate areas of the credit markets, uh, asset-backed markets, um, the mark, uh, the financial sector as we know is heavily regulated today. Uh, not coincidentally, these were all the areas that caused all the problems during uh, the GFC. Uh, non-financial corporate credit uh, growth in terms of issuance uh, has been significant, both public uh, and private markets. And that's where, you know, even you know, before COVID, uh, we did see a meaningful deterioration uh, in underwriting standards. Uh, more corporate leverage, uh, more aggressive rating agency um, frameworks uh, around um, you know, putting their ratings on certain types of risk, uh, far fewer covenants, and when there were covenants, not particularly strong covenants. We also saw a significant uh, build-out or growth uh, in the private markets, which are inherently lower-quality uh, lending markets. So this is where we think there's the weak link this time if we were to get into a broad economic slowdown. Uh, public markets have repriced, and they've repriced quite significantly uh, in certain sectors and segments of the market. Private credit markets um, that always move a lot more slowly have lagged and lagged considerably. Uh, that dynamic is true within the real estate credit markets as well. If you look at um, what um, type of spread you can obtain for like risk in a public CMBS security versus you know where lending is going on currently in the private space. So I think point number one, um, it's the corporate credit sectors where there's the most excess. Uh, 
It's nowhere near the type of excess we saw in the mortgage credit markets leading up to the global financial crisis, so don't want to sound overly alarming. But this is uh, probably the weakest link in the credit chain and where there will be some interesting opportunities for fresh balance sheets, fresh mandates to take advantage of what will likely be a, a moderate um, a, 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 yeah, default cycle uh, over the course of uh, the next few years. And then again, if you have you know, a public mandate that's repriced quite significantly versus other private markets, it makes sense to take advantage of those opportunities because over time there's going to need to be convergence. Uh, it can converge with public markets recovering. Uh, more likely it will converge by gradual deterioration in marks um, and a widening of spread levels um, in the private um, sector as well. And then the last point I'll make, um, all those areas I mentioned earlier that have been heavily regulated since the global financial crisis, you know, we think present tremendous opportunity for investors. People still get nervous today about housing-related risk. Um, banks continue to trade in, in a very volatile fashion, um, but they are well capitalized, and the mortgage credit market is 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 near pristine um, in in terms of you know the borrower qualifications necessary uh, to get a loan over you know the last decade or so. So and those are some high-level thoughts, um, and again consistent with the way we're positioned across portfolios. Of course, um, you know there's a difference you know when we're when we're operating in mutual fund space versus your longer locked up alternative vehicles, but those same general principles um, are the principles we're adhering to at this stage um, in the economic cycle. So my next question is completely out of self-interest, but I uh, I bought an, a house in in February of this year. Did I top tick the market? And then secondly, secondly, you know, you, you mentioned taking on some housing exposure or real estate exposure and and I'm curious what the opportunity is there exactly, because we have seen a lot of people worry about the fact that house prices shot up post-pandemic. Secondly, the fact that mortgage rates have shot up. And then thirdly, there's been some sort of market structure weirdness within the arena of mortgage-backed securities um, where things, you know, for a while, it looked like the market was sort of like creaking a little bit at the edges as rates went up very, very quickly. So how, how are you balancing that? Can you just dig into housing a little bit more for us? Sure. So um, you may have top-ticked the market. If you send all the details to our, our mortgage team, you know, we'll run some numbers and let you know just how much you, you top-ticked <laughs> it by. But, um, that's a good service. You know, offering that service, to, it's a really nice service, Tracy. You got to take them up on that. <laughs> yeah, I might too. Tell me how wrong I was. Yeah. It is a little frightening how much mortgage data um, of a highly granular fashion is out there nowadays. But um, but no, in, in terms of housing, um, so so you know we do think housing is going to slow and, and slow significantly. Uh, we think on a national basis, housing is likely to, to, to decline in real terms or inflation-adjusted terms over the course of the next few years. Our base case view is that home prices um, stabilize near um, zero growth or you know, very, very low single digit type growth rates. But it would not be surprising and it wouldn't necessarily have to be overly alarming if you saw if you see home prices decline on a national basis. Now, similar to the comments I made earlier, you know, in, in, on, on, on uh, the complicated you know, economic um, environment, housing markets are complicated as well. Um, as we know, there's been a massive shift in preferences um, since uh, the COVID pandemic. A desire to live further from the office, certain uh, vacation and resort communities um, have gone up uh, in price quite significantly. In some areas, uh, there's more land scarcity than others. So there are going to be pockets um, where you saw a big increase in demand where they're going to be outright price declines. 
um, you're going to hear over the course of the next several months, you know, more headlines around uh, price reductions, uh, price declines, um, a lot of stories uh, in, in that regard. And I think if you're underwriting a new pool of mortgages, uh, particularly higher risk type investments, you have to be very, very granular and very, very careful um, in how you underwrite that risk. But from a macro perspective, uh, there's still too few homes uh, in this country and other Western nations relative to uh, the number of households that have been formed over the last several years. Um, so again, that supply demand dynamic is important. Rents remain elevated. So when you think about the, the, the buy to rent decision, uh, although the cost to own a home has gone up, um, rental rates are going up as well. So that switch uh, is less obvious. And then when you step back and look at um, price to incomes, price to rents, the amount of borrower equity um, that exists. And again, you have a tremendous amount of borrower equity today after um, several years of, of significant home price growth. And I mentioned earlier, a near pristine mortgage market from a credit quality perspective, we just don't see a major risk of, of significant declines in housing on a national level. Um, we do expect, though, and you're already seeing this, a, a rise in inventories, a reduction in housing-related activity, which is the transmission me mechanism or, or one of the transmission mechanisms uh, that's going to help slow uh, the economy and eventually uh, bring inflation back down uh, toward, towards more reasonable levels. Uh, and then last but not least, from an investment perspective in housing-related areas of the market, um, those investments, uh, in many cases, aren't tied to um, what goes on in home prices from here because they've delivered so much. So the typical housing-related investment you can buy today uh, is backed by pools of mortgages that were issued, uh, again, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, embedded loan-to-value ratios in those types of investments today have fallen from 120% back during the global financial crisis down to 40% in most cases today. Uh, a borrower with 60 points of equity in their property uh, even you know, facing moderate declines in their current home price uh, are not a big default risk. And even if they are, um, that's the type of loan where you'd anticipate a full recovery. So a lot of what we like in the market today uh, is season type risk that benefits from the multi years of home price appreciation and therefore is much less sensitive to what goes on uh, from this point forward. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me uh, go to the other side of things. I mean, just trying to think of your overall view. It seems like 
not particularly pessimistic. Your outlook isn't particularly dire, but clearly risks abound and opportunities to derail a return to a soft landing, uh, all kinds of risks out there. I'm curious, though, like, what is your view right now on if and what role uh, Treasury should have in people's portfolio? Because and I've asked quite versions of this question to many people. It's like for years, it was just such a great trade to own a slug of 10-year treasuries. And they went up in uh, the, the principal appreciated in value. They were a great diversifier to risk assets. They usually went up when the stock market went down in the short term. And now those conditions are obviously changing to some extent. 60-40 type portfolios got clubbed. That coupon that you're getting each year is getting swallowed up big time by inflation. Is there a role uh, for, uh, what is the role for treasury ownership? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And um, of, of course, you know, what you're getting at is, is, is a correlation argument. Um, you know, are, are we going to have, are, are we, are we going to get back to, yeah, can we get back um, there? You know, uh, yeah, to, to a degree. And I think you're, you're, you're witnessing this um, now with the recent rally that we've seen in government bond markets, uh, elevated geopolitical risk, um, you know, both, both in Europe and in and, and the China situation, signs of a, of a deteriorating uh, economy and elevated risks of recession. And now government bonds um, are beginning to rally, um, you know, on that type of news. Now, you know, we think you you get better protection, you know, up when a 10-year treasury is at 3.5% versus, you know, closer to 2.5%. But we do still think uh, high-quality bonds at these higher yield levels will provide some uh, insurance benefit. Now, locally, and by locally, I mean, you know, during, you know, small moves in markets, uh, we don't think, you know, you're going to, you know, we think correlation is going to be much lower than they've been in the past. I think that's going to be the case um, as long as inflation remains a key risk facing financial markets. But if inflation begins to trend lower up towards central bank ranges, so again, exiting this this post-COVID period of, of elevated inflation, we do think you could revert back to more traditional correlations and high quality bonds can, you know, provide stronger protections uh, or stronger diversifying benefits for um, a multi-asset type uh, portfolio. But for the time being, and by the time being, I mean the next several quarters, those correlations are going to be highly um, unstable. Uh, we think in extreme flight to quality situations, signs of a major hard landing uh, in, in, in the global economy, signs of, you know, um, deteriorating, um, um, a deteriorating situation with the war in Europe or a heightened conflict, you know, with China as another example. Uh, we think those are scenarios that likely lead to um, lower treasury yields. So the bottom line is uh, we, we wouldn't give up on bonds here. I think investors just need to understand that um, those traditional relationships that were fairly strong have weakened. Uh, and there's just more uncertainty, at least over the short term, uh, in terms of these overall trading uh, relationships. How are you hedging volatility nowadays? And who is selling it? Because it feels like everyone wants volatility protection. And I can remember, you know, once upon a time, not so long ago, PIMCO was a big seller of vol protection. But I, I'm assuming you guys aren't doing much of that now. We well, we sell a little bit of uh, we sell a little bit of volatility explicitly. Um, I, we didn't talk about agency mortgages. Um, you, you, know, you know these these uh, are, are are interesting investments. They benefit from a direct government guarantee or a strong agency guarantee, which is always nice. You know, given heightened risk of uh, of, of a more material economic slowdown, uh, and they've widened and spread a lot. Um, they're not quite as cheap as they were in the first quarter of 2020, um, but they are quite attractive on an option-adjusted spread basis relative um, to where they've been historically. So we have been adding back 
some agency mortgage-backed securities. Um, in, in an agency mortgage-backed security, you know, represents a, a, a form of a volatility sale. We've also, on a targeted basis, have have, have taken advantage of some volatility sales um, in the option markets. That's one of the areas I mentioned earlier, where you know a lot of the the hedge funds, other specialist managers, have been caught offside um, given the the, the significant uh, moves in realized volatility, and there has been a few opportunities to provide. Uh, liquidity um, and, and, and take on some of that risk um, at what we think are attractive levels. But the way that we're, we're dealing with volatility or uncertainty now is, is, is really staying up in quality uh, in terms of um, our investments. And you know, I mentioned that we've been reluctant to aggressively add to the weaker areas of the credit markets where your short volatility from a more implicit perspective. Um, so across a lot of our portfolios today, We've been taking advantage of the widening in areas of the market that represent spread risk, not material risk of, of permanent capital impairment. And I mentioned agency mortgages in that category. I mentioned the non-agency or the non-government guaranteed mortgages. I mentioned the banks where we have a high degree of conviction that although those spreads will remain volatile, most banks, particularly US banks, uh, a bit more isolated from uh, the European uncertainty, are tremendously well capitalized and not taking um, significant risks uh, at the moment. And then there's a whole slew of other, you know, AAA and AA type risk, uh, high quality municipal bonds, other areas of the asset back sectors where you have a lot of hard collateral and additional subordination. You know, these are all areas that um, should be resilient in a period of heightened volatility, and which in some cases have widened in sympathy with these other markets that um, are much more sensitive to credit fundamentals. Where are the areas that you see are particularly sensitive to credit fundamentals that you want to avoid because you don't want to deal with actual uh, impairment? I mentioned the private markets. Um, right. you know, uh, and and, and I, I, again, you need to differentiate there. What we're referring to there would be more traditional direct lending, mid-market companies that tend to struggle in a recessionary environment, you know, more so than larger cap names. The other issues within um, the private markets, which have, which have um, significantly lagged public markets, or the senior secured bank loan market, as an example, is that you have floating rate debt. Uh, so borrowers within that space are seeing a direct impact from um, Fed policy in the form of higher debt service costs. Now, some of those companies will hedge in the cap markets, but typically it's a partial hedge. Several companies uh, won't hedge, and it's not easy to tell which companies um, are hedging and which ones aren't. So you know, that's an area of, of the market that's going to be more sensitive to rate policy from here. In fact, we anticipate that if the Fed had to tighten policy materially more than a terminal funds rate of 3.5%, you know, you'll begin to see a decent amount of stress um, on that segment of the market. Um, if that higher rate policy coincides with EBITDA or earnings deterioration, uh, you can even see you know, more problems uh, from a downgrade perspective in that segment of the market. So again, I don't want to sound you know, overly alarmist here, but in terms of looking for weaker links uh, in the marketplace, uh, that's where we would focus, and that's where we're being most uh, defensive um, right now in terms of overall credit positioning. So I think you've outlined a pretty um, sort of cautiously optimistic approach here, or maybe cautiously opportunistic, where you're sort of selecting quality credits and, and things like that. What would make you feel comfortable about taking on either more credit or more interest rate risk in general? Like, is there a particular thing, if you saw that happen, an economic data point or something in the market where you would just jump right in? 
Yeah, so, so you, know, I, you know, from more of a top-down perspective, um, better valuations um, as, as a start, you know, you know stating, stating the obvious. Um, you know, if, if we got up to a point where um, you saw some of these riskier segments of the market embed a much higher probability of an outright recession, you know, we would we would get more comfortable now. You know that that's likely up at levels. You know, you know around 700 basis points. You know, you know within the high yield space. Now again, you, you think about high yield in a, in a full blown recession, and you, know, you get to a you know thousand basis point type spreads quite easily. But as as you approach that level, um, and you embed you know you know more risk of harder landings, you know we would begin to add uh, to that space a bit more aggressively. Uh, in terms of the fundamental picture, um, you know, really focusing on this inflationary process, uh, we think headline is is hard to forecast, and, and is I'm certainly going to come down based on what we're seeing in commodity prices today. Uh, but other areas represented in core CPI um, are going to bear watching as well. Uh, one is housing or owner's equivalent rent; uh, it's been quite elevated. Um, another is um, wages um, that have been running, you know, at, at, at levels that are, that are that are making central banks uh, uncomfortable. Uh, even related to labor, um, a focus on the labor force uh, and seeing, you know, what percent of the labor force uh, returns to the market, uh, providing some cushion and, you know, increasing the probabilities that the Fed can bring job openings lower without a meaningful hit uh, to unemployment. So it's it's really the details uh, embedded in a lot of these higher frequency economic uh, indicators uh, that we're monitoring more closely. Of course, on, a, on the geopolitical side, any type of sign of um, a stalemate or an improvement um, in the relationship between Russia and Europe, uh, the situation on the ground in, in Ukraine, it would take a considerable risk off uh, the table as well. So uh, just a lot of focus on the, the higher frequency type numbers. Um, but again, even if um, we don't get resolution there, we are going to respond to, you know, better valuations, you know, like we did a did a bit, you know, several weeks ago, you know, at, at, at higher yields and, and, and materially wider spreads. All right, Dan, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Uh, really great to have you on the show. And uh, I'll, I'll be sending over my uh, my mortgage data to your department so you can tell me exactly how bad my timing was on, on real estate purchases. Well, thank do you that. so much. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that. They have some pretty <laughs> pictures, too. Yeah, they, uh, they, they, they look real good. So, Joe, I really enjoyed that conversation. There were, I mean, a number of things that stick out. Um, number one, the call on real estate. But secondly, when he was talking about floating rate loans and the idea of some of those companies who had borrowed money in floating rate increments, like actually becoming a credit risk as interest rates go up, that's interesting to me because you'll remember that floating rate loans were supposed to be the big hedge for higher interest rates, right? Like those were the things you were supposed to buy if inflation was going to go up and rates were going to go up. And now it's like, well, they've gone up too much and it might actually be a risk. Right. So if you're an owner of those uh, notes, yes, you get higher monthly coupons, which is nice in a period of higher inflation. But the cohort of companies that mo may have issued those <laughs> the company loans might go bankrupt are not uh, necessarily <laughs> the more uh, the most creditworthy ones, which raises the risk that if we actually get like a real recession, that your inflation hedge uh, suddenly start to worry about uh, loss of a uh, loss of principal. Exactly. You know, just in general, I thought it was interesting, sort of 
And basically to the point that you just made, you know, we, we tend to think very broadly about like rates and credit, but it was interesting hearing him, you know, sort of speaking from the perspective of a, uh, of a fixed income investor that's like, you know, credit is just way too broad a category. And so you mentioned mm. uh, floating rate debt, but also some of his point about like highly seasoned REITs was interesting. Yeah. And this idea that, again, how do you avoid credit risk? How do you get some of the uh, how do you get some of the upside, but avoid the credit risk in a downturn? Well, one answer might be uh, REITs in which the owners or the payers of those mortgages have built up significant equity such that you're not likely to experience significant defaults. These are all just sort of things that are like a little more in depth and insightful than sort of a typical like headline credit conversation. Yeah, I totally agree. And it sounds like PIMCO, I mean, you would assume PIMCO would be very good at doing this, but it sounds like PIMCO is sort of, they're not, they're cautious in the market. They're not adding a ton of risk, but they are sort of tweaking their portfolio for the uncertainties that we just discussed. Well, and I think also, you know, this is a, uh, this is an environment with lots of, uh, lots of, I don't know, landmines out there, so to speak, mm. in which, you know, it'd be easy to, uh, or, you know, stepping on a rake, right, and hitting your face. And so this idea that, like, you can be <laughs> sort of optimistic, you think maybe the Fed, uh, it's possible that it's turned the corner or getting ready to make a pivot, that maybe we're going to soon see lower CPI readings, we'll have some confidence that the line is going down, but there are just so many little things that could go wrong. There's politics, there's geopolitics, uh, there's uh, the virus, there's other aspects of the supply chain that, like, it all sort of keeps you guessing. Actually, recording these intros and outros kind of makes me nervous nowadays because there's so much that could happen between the time that we record and when we release. Yeah. All right. Um, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Armin. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. 